This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. This fall, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in a challenge to the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. And there is no one better to talk about that case with us than Julie Rovner, who is the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and the host of KHN's What the Health podcast. Before going to KHN, Julie spent 16 years as the health policy correspondent for NPR, where she helped to lead the coverage of the passage and implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Julie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, Before we get started on the Affordable Care Act, I think we need to talk about something very important, which is your new home office intern. Can you tell us a little bit about her? That's right. Her name is Aspen, and as of uh, Saturday, she is 10 weeks old. Uh, She is a cousin to my other Corgi Wallace and the successor to Gromit, who passed away in 2019. And so far, she's adjusting pretty well, although she does a lot of sleeping on the job. Uh, no filing? No uh, no data entry? Not yet. Uh, at the moment, it's mostly chewing. Chewing, but she's good at that, I bet. She's very good at that. If you follow Julie on Twitter, you've also seen, which you should, by the way, at Jay Rovner, you've probably also seen the at KFF Dogs Twitter handle. How did that get started? It actually started in California um, because on Fridays you know, at our California office, people are allowed to bring their dogs. So we started a Dogs of KFF Twitter handle, and we have a fair number of dogs who come to the office in Washington. Uh, in fact, both Wallace and Gromit were sort of frequent uh, visitors to, to the KFF offices here in D.C. Well, until Gromit passed away, and then Wally until uh, the office is closed. So at least we can keep up with the rest of the dogs on Twitter. <laughs> All right. Well, let's look forward to Aspen's first visit to the office whenever that is, hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, let's start at the beginning because some of our listeners are probably thinking, wait, back in 2012, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the four liberals in holding that the individual mandate is constitutional because it's a tax. What's happened since then? Why are we here? Because opponents didn't give up. That Actually, that case that was decided in 2012 was originally filed on March 23rd, 2010, the same day President Obama signed the law. So basically, the Affordable, Care Act, nope, the Affordable Care Act has been under some threat of lawsuit for its entire 10-year and a couple of month existence. And when they decided, when they couldn't sort of win the, the, the case that they thought, which was that the mandate is unconstitutional and therefore the whole law is, then they went back and they found a sort of obscure piece of, uh, of the the Affordable Care Act that they said that you could only actually provide subsidies to people if they bought their insurance in the state exchanges, which people who wrote the law, because of course, it's only a couple of years old. We're not talking about 100 years old. And they said, that's not what we meant. But yet it still went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, nope, we're not going to buy that one either. So then we've had various and sundry lawsuits about pieces of the Affordable Care Act. There's a lot going on still with the birth control provisions. But the next sort of existential challenge came came um, after the uh, Republicans in Congress passed the tax bill in 2017 at the very end of the year and zeroed out the penalty for not having health insurance. And that's what led us to what the Supreme Court will hear this fall. So who are the players in this lawsuit at the Supreme Court now? 
Interestingly, it's mostly attorneys general. It's the Republican attorneys general that brought this lawsuit. Um, I was told sort of quietly by one of them after the initial press conference that they were doing, they filed it in early 2018. And he said, you know, we're not filing this so much for the the substance and the merits of it, but because 2018 is an election year and having the Congress having failed to repeal the Affordable Care Act in 2017 left the base demoralized. So this was to give them, basically throw them some red meat and say, look, we're still trying to get rid of the ACA. I don't think they thought that this lawsuit would go as far as it has. And obviously on the other side are the Democratic attorneys general who are defending the law because, and I'm sure we'll get to this, the Trump administration is not. <laughs> Right. So we have the we have the challengers who are basically a group of red states, Texas, Alabama, Arkansas. You can sort of go through in alphabetical order. We've got the blue states, California, et cetera. We've got the House of Representatives defending the law. And then the Trump administration is in there as well, but not defending the law. Have I covered the universe? Yes, okay. that's right. And okay. the Trump administration had two different positions on this, but neither one of them was in defense of the entire law. Okay, we'll walk through. They went to federal court in Texas, and the federal district court said, yes, the individual mandate is unconstitutional because there's no longer a tax for failing to obtain health insurance. And without a tax, without the mandate, the rest of the law has to go. And That's right. Yes. It was just before Christmas. I was at a Christmas party when the news came down. And yes, this was, I mean, I don't know whether it was totally unexpected because the Republicans kind of went shopping for a judge and got the judge that they wanted. So, um, but it did cause, you know, all manner of uh, of people to start running around screaming. And so then the, the, the blue states appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit says... The Fifth Circuit kind of punted. They that's said, the Supreme Court's yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, that's what the Fifth Circuit did. The Fifth Circuit said, yeah, we agree with the lower court judge that it's unconstitutional because there's no tax left. But that whole, that whole part about getting rid of the rest of the law, we don't think he did a very good job on deciding that. We would think he should maybe go back and do a little more sophisticated job at figuring out what parts of the law can stay and what parts of the law would have to be jettisoned. So that was the Fifth Circuit, and that made nobody very happy. Right. And so then California and the House instead went straight to the Supreme Court and said... That's right. Rab yeah. They said, this will take too much time. If you're sending it back to the lower court, who could take who knows how much time and it would go back to the appeals court. And, you know, people are going to vote in 2020 and people are at risk of losing their health insurance. Remember, 20 million people, probably way more now because of the pandemic, probably more like 22 million people have health insurance only because of the Affordable Care Act. And if it were to go away in its entirety, all of those people would cease to have health insurance. It would be a really big deal. So the um, the Democrat, the blue state attorneys general said, we really Really think the Supreme Court should step in now. And the Supreme Court agreed to do it, although they didn't agree to decide it before the election. Right. The Supreme Court also kind of punted. They punted, or I don't know if this is correct. <laughs> you can tell I haven't watched football in a while. It was an onside kick, maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not really, but... <laughs> not really. Yeah, no. They, they basically, they, they, tried to, they tried to please both sides. Right. And please neither. Yes. And so let's, let's, we'll talk through a couple of the issues. I mean, the main issue... Or what? I, I get. I'm not even sure it is the main issue, but one of the main issues, obviously, is whether or not the mandate can survive without the tax. And so, what are the House and the blue states saying? 
Well, basically, I mean, and it's important to go back and remember sort of why why the, the Congress did what it did. When they did the tax bill, they were doing it under these specific rules called budget reconciliation, where you only need to get a, a simple majority, but you everything has to be connected to the budget. There's a lot of things you can't do because in the Senate, you only need a simple majority. So they couldn't actually get rid of the mandate, which is what they would have liked to have done. If it had been done in a sort of a regular bill, they would have just eliminated that whole provision, but they couldn't do that. So instead they said, there's, there's still a mandate. But if you don't have insurance, your penalty will be zero. So there's a zero dollar mandate. And that I, I don't know whether how important legally that will turn out to be. But there's been a lot of discussion about whether that mandate really still exists or whether because the penalty is zero, it, it basically doesn't. And, and, you know, the blue states are saying if you don't have to pay anything, then there's no mandate. So, you know, at some point there, the argument is, why are we even here? And why do the red states have standing if nobody's getting hurt? And so from the red states perspective, it's pretty straightforward. Back in 2012, Roberts and the liberals said the mandate is constitutional because it's a tax. And now there's no longer a tax. QED, no longer constitutional. Although that's being argued, too, because they just they lowered the penalty to zero, but they could raise the penalty any time they wanted to. So there can you know, that's the argument of is it a tax if it's zero? Because that's what it now says that there, you know, there is a penalty of zero dollars because they had to write it that way to get it through the Congress. And so then to move on, it sounds like we're going to hear a lot once again at the oral argument about the concept of what's known in legal terms as severability. If there are at least five justices who agree that the mandate is not constitutional, that the mandate is is no longer in effect, what happens to the rest of the ACA? We heard a lot, particularly back in the case that You've mentioned it was called King versus Burwell involving the subsidies about the analogy with the three-legged stool. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that plays into the severability discussions? Yes, and, and there's a huge irony here. I mean, the three-legged stool was making insurers sell to people with pre-existing conditions, the, the actual mandate, so requiring people to buy it, and the third was the subsidies so that people, if they had to buy it, them being able to afford it. And the argument was without all three of those legs, it would fall. What's interesting and what's ironic is that the mandate's actually been gone since the beginning of 2019. So we've had a year and a half with no uh, no penalty for not buying insurance. What the insurers were afraid of was something called the death spiral, which is that if healthy people weren't required to buy insurance, the only people who would do it would be sick people. The insurers would end up spending too much money. Premiums would go up. Even the sick people wouldn't be able to afford it. And you'd end up with only the very sickest. So that was the big concern about having the mandate. That's why it was there. As it turns out, the subsidies are pretty much as important, if not more important than the mandate. So if you make it available at a price they can afford, even the healthy people will buy it. And that's actually what we've seen, that the insurance companies are not going broke. And I mean, not a ton of healthy people, but enough healthy people are buying it even without the mandate. So that would argue, going back to the lawsuit, that it is severable because it's been severed and the law is standing. I realize that's not how it works in, in lawsuits, but we do have real world experience where you see that the law can, in fact, continue without it, which back in 20. 12, even the people defending the law didn't think it could. How much of this real world experience is coming out in the briefs that are going to the justices so far? 
less than I would have thought. I actually haven't seen it very much, which surprises me because I keep stamping my feet up and down and saying, it's happening now. The law is doing fine. I mean, not great. The law has been sort of, uh, you know, I won't say disabled, but it's certainly been chipped away at by the Trump administration with some significant success. But it's hanging in beyond most people's expectation. And now it's hanging in in the wake of the pandemic and in the wake of the tax penalty going away. And I am still shocked every time, you know, I listen to people defending it, why they are not saying, of course, it's severable. It's been severed. The Supreme Court last term actually had a couple of cases involving severability, including one in which they were dealing with a law like the Affordable Care Act that did not have a severability clause. It didn't have a provision that told courts what to do if part of the law was found unconstitutional. What what happened in that case? surprisingly, they found that you actually could sever it and leave the rest of the law standing, which a lot of people who are watching this ACA case looked at and noted, you know, with some interest. Yeah, it was very, it was a case about robocalls, but all of the, all of the health policy reporters were following it very closely. For exactly that reason, because we wanted to know where the where the court was going to be on severability. Now, you know, who knows what they're going to do? But it was interesting that, yes, just this year, um, at the end of the term, the court has said, yeah, there doesn't have to be a severability provision in the law for us to sever it and leave the rest of the law standing. So there is a third issue in the case uh, involving standing, the legal right to sue, whether or not, you know, in addition to the, the so-called red states challenging the mandate, there's also a couple of individuals challenging the mandate. And so there are questions about whether either the individuals or the states have a legal right to challenge the constitutionality of the mandate. Do you think this is going to be an issue, particularly after I'm thinking of the Uh, the cases this term involving the Little Sisters of the Poor and the birth control mandate in which Pennsylvania and New Jersey were challenging the Trump administration's exemptions from the birth control mandate. Yeah, can I, I will, I will say this forever. The little, I still don't understand the Little Sisters of the Poor didn't have standing in the birth control case because they kept saying that we'll be fined if we don't provide birth control to our employees. But the Little Sisters of the Poor's insurance company is called Christian Brothers. And the insurance company is also exempt under the Affordable Care Act because it is a religious organization. And therefore, the they're, you know they kept saying we would be complicit if we allowed our insurance company to do this. But their insurance company didn't have to do this. So they weren't going to be complicit in anything. So I still don't understand why a bigger fuss was not made about the standing of the Little Sisters of the Poor. In the ACA case, some of the individuals, they're arguing that it's unconstitutional because we were required to buy health insurance, except there's some question about whether they did or whether they had to. Um, there have been some, some really interesting stories about, you know, some of these individuals. And obviously, both sets of states are arguing that the other state doesn't have standing. So, I mean, the Supreme Court, if yeah, if they really wanted to punt, they could probably make this whole case go away based on standing. <laughs> The Supreme Court has not yet announced when it will hear oral argument in the case. Uh, It could be argued in November, quite possibly even on Election Day. We should know in the next month or two when the date will be set. As I mentioned, you can follow Julie Rovner. You should follow Julie Rovner on Twitter 
at Jay Rovner. Uh, you can follow Kaiser Health News. If you have complaints about your health care, you should not tweet at either Julie Rovner or Kaiser Health News. Uh, we at SCOTUS Blog sympathize with the, uh, the complaints you, that you get about Kaiser Permanente. Yes, which we are we are not not and never have been affiliated with Kaiser Permanente. We, we as as someone like say we share an ancestor. <laughs> we, we were never connected to them, and are not now. Julie Rovner, uh, hopefully we'll be able to have you back after the Supreme Court's oral argument, and maybe we can talk to you about the argument and get your, get your thoughts on it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's another episode of Skoda's Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser.